just to remind you, I'm sure you knew this, but uh, this is our last lesson in this series in Isaiah. So if you come next week, I think actually, the, you know, <laughs> it'll actually be closed because they close after Easter. So you won't even get, be able to get in the church, I don't think. But uh, this is our last one, and uh, I anticipate, you never know, but I anticipate that we will have another series in September. And if you're on the email list, you'll certainly get that message about exactly what date that will start and what the subject is and everything else, all right? If you're not on the email list and you want to be notified, make sure and give me your email. <laughs> I have people all the time that come up and say, well, I didn't get anything on this or that. And I go, well, did you give me your email? Do I need to do that? Won't name any names. <laughs> All right. So we will primarily today be in Isaiah 53, one of the great passages in the Bible. And it's the, one of the great prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus and who Jesus is and what he was going to do. It's a terrific passage in Isaiah 53. Uh, and it's all about Jesus uh, sacrificing himself for us, uh, a little bit like the characters in today's movie clip sacrificing themselves for their sons and their family. <laughs> oh, silly. All right. As you probably know, at the beginning of God's program to redeem mankind, God called Abraham in Genesis 12... The very, this started the redemptive program that God had to bring man back. After the original sin, man was alienated, and God, out of love, is going to do something to redeem him, to bring him back, to repair the relationship. So he calls Abraham in Genesis 12, and he makes him promises. And the big promise for us is, I will bless all the people on earth through one of your descendants. And that's repeated again in Genesis 22:18 to Abraham, and fortunately for us, uh, Galatians 3.16, Paul tells us, reveals to us in the New Testament, makes it clear that the descendant is Jesus, the descendant that God promised, one of Abraham's descendants, that would bless the world with salvation is Jesus Christ. And then in our study, we saw in Isaiah 7.14, the prophet Isaiah said, the sign to Israel of that descendant and the blessing of salvation would be that a virgin would be with child and bear a son and he will be called God with us. Matthew 1.23, when Jesus was born, the author of Matthew said that fulfilled the promise, the, the uh, prophecy of Isaiah. And then in Isaiah 9, we read, a child will be born, a son given, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. All great titles for Jesus. Uh, again, the Messianic prophecies from Isaiah. And then last week we saw in Isaiah 49 that Isaiah wrote, speaking for God, my servant, God said, my servant who's coming will be a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach all the earth. And so 
God predicted through the prophet Isaiah that his servant would come. Now, who is this servant? Obviously, he will accomplish bringing the light, the atoning for sins, blessing us with salvation, all these things promised by God in the Old Testament, fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, uh, Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of all these prophecies, and he spoke of himself also as the servant who would also be the good shepherd. He would not only be a servant and come to serve, but he would be our good shepherd. A good shepherd who loves his sheep. So it's a great analogy. Jesus is the shepherd. We're the sheep. And he takes care of us. He, he loves us so much that he would even lay his life down. Let me read John 10, what Jesus said in John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And, of course, in today's lesson in Isaiah, we all, the whole human race, are called sheep who have gone astray, who've wandered off away from God, and the good shepherd will bring them back. And Jesus says here in the New Testament, I'm the fulfillment of that. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. He knows the people who will believe, and all who will believe will come to Jesus and be saved. I have other sheep, so it's not just Israel. He's got other sheep, Gentiles, us, uh, which are not of the fold of Israel. And I will bring them also, and they will make up one flock of sheep. They will bring Jews and Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, everybody together into one flock. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So the sacrifice and the resurrection, no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. So Jesus willingly sacrificed himself. He gave himself up. A lot of people see the life of Jesus. If you watch one of those things on the History Channel, he was an unsuspecting victim. You know, he just came to Jerusalem for the Passover and they grabbed him. It wasn't fair, you know. Uh, no, it was predicted. He fulfilled it. He willingly gave himself up. And it was all according to God's plan. So now in Isaiah 53, uh, this great prediction of Jesus' coming and all that uh, God was going to do, you will see a series of contrasts in Isaiah 53. Just a few of those uh, contrasts. Sins were committed by us, but being stricken fell on Jesus. We were lost sheep, but the good shepherd finds us. He was despised because God loved us. People misunderstood him, but God understood us and what we needed. By his scourging, we were healed. He was killed so that we would live. We could live. He suffered so God would be satisfied because he was despised, humiliated, and rejected, beaten and killed. God would exalt him. These are concepts that the world does not get. The world does not understand. That's what the uniqueness of Jesus There's nobody else like him. There's nobody else that 
thinks like this, there's nobody else that would do this but this servant that God would send into the world that Isaiah 53 predicted, all right? Uh, and so, again, this uh, image of the sheep and the shepherd, uh, it's, a, it's a great image. It's used 44 times in the Bible that God is the shepherd or Jesus is the shepherd and we are the people, the human race is the sheep. 44 times we're called sheep in the Bible. So it must be an analogy that fits, right? There must be something about it that, works. Uh, here, but here's a tip. It's not a compliment. <laughs> You're probably thinking, oh sheep, they are real cute and everything. Got that wonderful white wool. You know, it's not a compliment here. Believe me. Because the fact is they are totally defenseless animals. They're defenseless against every kind of predator. They have poor eyesight. They have no physical attributes to defend themselves. They have no claws. They have no sharp teeth. They have no horns. They're too slow to run away, and they're too dumb to hide. That's a bad combo. Even worse, they've got to be led everywhere. They can't find their own food, water, or even shelter. They have to have a shepherd to lead them to all these places. And they're so dumb that they will actually follow sheep in front of them and walk right off a cliff. That's happened. They need a shepherd to lead them. They've got to have it. They're poor swimmers. They've got so much wool that they dare not get near moving water. Because if they fall in, the weight of it will drown them and they can't swim. So <laughs> the shepherd has to take them to still water. You know, just like the... 23rd Psalm. He leads me beside the still water. They can't be trained. I mean, think about it. Have you ever seen any circus sheep? <laughs> no. <laughs> they can't fight. Have you ever heard of any attack sheep? You know? No. Guard sheep? No. Have you ever been to the sheep races? <laughs> there aren't any. There's no sheep fights. I mean, they... They really fit us. We are completely dependent on the Lord our God, just as the sheep are to the shepherd. And so God is not trying to increase our self-esteem by calling us sheep. He's saying that we're sinners who have been gone astray, and he has to bring us back, and we need him as our shepherd. We're defenseless without him. Spiritually, we can find nothing, do nothing, and be nothing without the shepherd. And so with the shepherd, on the other hand, we're safe, we're secure, we're fed, we're watered, and we have eternal life. But if we wander off like dumb sheep, thinking we're self-reliant, we're going to be food for wolves. That's the truth of Scripture, of the Bible. All right? So if, as you look at uh, it, really, uh, the 53rd a chapter of Isaiah really begins in chapter 52, verse 13. Verse 13 through 15 uh, is really connected. It, as you're no doubt aware, I'm sure you know, that the original writing uh, did not have chapters and verses. <laughs> Those were added later by um, during, the Ref at, during and after the Reformation to help people study the Bible. You know, people started getting their own personal Bibles and everything, and uh, they did it in order to facilitate the studying 
of the Bible. And so uh, chapter 52, verse 13 through 15, you see uh, these three verses contain in short form what is taught in length in chapter 53, only in reverse order. God's servant will be greatly exalted in the beginning of this little section and then sacrifice, whereas in Isaiah 53, it's just the opposite. He talks about no stately form or majesty, how humble he is, and all the stuff that he has to go through. And then at the end of chapter 3, he'll be exalted. So we can have kind of a summary statement. Behold, my servant, who we know the Messiah, Jesus, will prosper. He will be exalted, in other words. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted by God. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man in his form, more than any sons of man. So he wasn't handsome that people would be drawn to him. He didn't look like a king or, or a leader at all. But God would exalt him for his sacrifice. Verse 15, thus he will sprinkle uh, many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Talking about bringing the Gentiles in to what is before Christ came was only for Israel. And Jesus brought the Gentiles into the kingdom of God as well. All right? So, uh, in chapter 53, verse 1 through 3, we have a series of questions. It's kind of like uh, verse 1 through 3 is kind of the evaluation of Jesus from mankind's view. Think of that. When mankind saw Jesus, what did they think of it? And you have these questions uh, that are they're going to be answered in the rest of Isaiah, like, who has believed? Who believed his message? Well, for a while, it didn't seem like anybody. Why should we even look upon someone who's so humble and sorrowful and despised like him? How could death bring life? The guy, poor guy dies. What good is that going to do? How could death bring life? Why did the majority despise and not esteem him? These are all questions asked here in the beginning of Isaiah 53. And think about it. It must have been really confusing to, the, to anybody, to the human race, to us, confusing that a king would come to serve. I mean, you ever know one of the? No, it's the other way around. He's king, so people will serve him. But this king came to serve. Or a conqueror would come to be killed. A conqueror's come to kill and destroy. He came to be killed. Or that the Son of God would offer himself to be humiliated, spit on, tortured, basically, and killed. Who can make sense out of that is what Isaiah is saying in, in verse 1 through 3. Look at it. Who has believed our message? I mean, it's so far-fetched that God would send his own son to do these things. You'd never believe it. Who has believed this? Nobody would believe this. And to whom has the arm of the Lord, like God sent his right arm uh, in Jesus to accomplish something? Well, who did he come to be revealed to? For he grew up before him, 
Jesus grew up before God like a tender shoot, just a common, ordinary, humble man living as a carpenter there in a little obscure village of Nazareth. So very humble beginnings. From the cradle to the grave, a life of humility and suffering uh, marked him. So he's totally misunderstood, right? How so? Uh, it also says he was scorned. Think about it. Misunderstood, scorned. Go back to the gospel accounts. Who's he scorned by? Who's he misunderstood by? Who didn't believe him, as it says, who would believe the message? His own family. In Mark chapter 3, his family came. His brothers and sisters came because they thought he had lost his mind. This brother that they grew up with that built cabinets with them and furniture and framed houses, he's suddenly out walking around telling people he's the son of God and he's the Messiah. They went to get him to bring him back and say, you've lost your mind. And then in John's chapter 7, he, it says they were not believing in him. His own family, his own brothers and sisters scorned him, misunderstood did not believe. How about all the hometown friends? He went back to his hometown of Nazareth. What happened? He read from Isaiah. And he says, today I fulfilled the, the passages of Isaiah, the prophecies of Isaiah. It made him so mad. Who is this guy? He grew up down the street. He, he put in my kitchen cabinets. He played... Why football with my son Jimmy? <laughs> he's gotten up and said he's the, the son of God. He fulfilled all that. Are you kidding me? And when he started making these claims about being God, they yelled blasphemy, and they tried to take him and throw him over the cliff in Nazareth, his hometown. Rejected him, misunderstood. His, the crowd that you thought was friendly to him because he'd been doing all those miracles, we find out they'd only been coming for the miracles. And John's account in John chapter 6, when he started telling this crowd that he was going to have to be crucified in John 6, after he did the miracle of defeating the 5,000, the crowd grew and came for more miracles. And when Jesus started teaching them that he had to die and they had to believe in his death, they went, well, he's nuts. And the crowd literally left. That crowd left. The whole crowd. And he was rejected, misunderstood by his own nation. The nation of Israel rejected him completely. So yeah, he was scorned. They, he was not believed in. And why? Because he just didn't look like the guy. We're looking for a guy. He doesn't look like the guy. We weren't looking for a servant. We weren't looking for a humble guy. We were looking for an Alexander the Great or a Caesar, somebody tough. He has no stately form or majesty in verse 2. He doesn't have an appearance that we look on him and, and go, yeah, that's him. And, verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. His own hometown got so mad at him and despised him so bad they wanted to kill him. Terrible the way they treated him and how they received him initially. 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief. You can imagine what that did to Jesus who loved all these people so much. How much did he love them? He was willing to die for them. You can't love anybody more than that. And yet they treated him badly. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. They looked at him with that. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So that was the view of Jesus by the human race. That's how they looked at him. Imagine, just in your mind's eye, think of Jesus after Pilate. They took him to Pilate on Friday, right? And he's standing up there. He's already been scourged. He's had 39 lashes. The soldiers punched him in the face repeatedly. He's all beat up. They put the crown of thorns on his head and slammed it into his head so he's got blood just pouring down. The skin is whipped off of his back, and he's in chains. And he's standing up there on the stop steps of the praetorium with Pilate, and the crowd looks at him and goes, that isn't the guy. That's not the guy we want. Crucify him. That's what Isaiah is trying to tell us. This is the misunderstanding of the human race. It's not what they expected. It's not what they wanted. They're disappointed. But now in verse 4, thank goodness we get to see God's view. That's man's view. They had it all wrong. But how did God see this? What was God's view of Jesus and who he was and what he did? And, of course, this is the truth of who Jesus is that we have here. Surely our griefs. Life is hard. It's tough. There is a lot of grief and hardship. But he took all that upon himself. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. He was willing to be a substitute for us. Whatever we had that's not right, he said, let me take that. Remember in Matthew 11, I think it's verse 28, he said to the people who had been burdened by all this religion, all the do's and don'ts, the commandments and the traditions of all these legalistic religious leaders, they couldn't keep it. They had incredible repressed guilt because of it. And it was like a great burden to them. And they walked around like this, figuratively. And Jesus said, come to me. This is why I came, to take your burden off of you. Come to me, all you who are weary. Life has beat you down. It's hard. All who are weary and heavy laden, you've got a tremendous load you're carrying. Come to me, Jesus said, for my burden is light, and I'll make you, I'll make you free. And that's what Jesus came to do, is to take their burden. And so Isaiah is saying, our sorrows he carried, we ourselves esteemed him stricken. We thought he was stricken, knocked down, beaten, killed, but really he was smitten of God, afflicted, 
on purpose by God for a reason. He was pierced through for our transgressions. We were the transgressors, but he is our substitute. He took the transgressions as a substitute by being pierced. Remember the soldier stuck the spear through him? One of the many prophecies that were fulfilled on the cross because David had said in the Psalms that not a bone of his would be broken. And we see as he's on the cross and it's approaching dark, they got to get him down and get him buried before Passover starts because they can't, I mean before the uh, uh, Sabbat starts because they can't, the Sabbath, they can't work on the Sabbath, so they got to get him buried. So they tell him to kill him. Well, what they normally did was break their legs. Why? Because on crucifixion, you, the only way you could breathe was to push yourself up because that heavy weight over time was crushing your lungs, and so they constantly had to push. Imagine the nails through your feet and legs and your hands, and you had to constantly, just to breathe, pull yourself up. The excruciating pain of that. But if they broke their legs, they couldn't push up, and then they would be asphyxiated pretty quick. But since the prophet said, not a bone of his will be broken, the two criminals on either side of him broke their legs. They died. But for Jesus, they took a spear. They didn't break his legs. They stuck a spear through him. Amazing. If I was Isaiah, I wouldn't have the courage to go into such detail. <laughs> I'd make some general statement, you know. But he went into detail, and so pierced through for our transgressions. We deserved it. He took it. He was crushed for our iniquities, that substitution, which is such a great subject here, great emphasis by Isaiah. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. The chastening that had to happen to bring justice because of sin, he took. He brought justice. And by his scourging, we are healed. He was scourged 39 times. They ripped all the skin off of him, but it healed us. <coughs> all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. What's the problem with the human race? Why did he need to do all this? A lot of people have asked me over the years, this seemed like such a severe thing for God to do. Isn't there another way? Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, you looked up to God knowing what was getting ready to happen, said, what about plan B? Surely there's a plan B. And, of course, God said, no, this is the only way. And Jesus said, not my will, but God's. And so he willingly gave himself up. But that's why. Because we are like sheep that have gone astray. We've all wandered off, we're alienated from God, and the good shepherd had to round us up and bring us in and reunite us with God through his vicarious sacrifice, his substitution for us. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Isn't that the human race? They all want to be independent. They all want to make their own decisions. They don't want to keep any rules. 
They want freedom. Remember you grew up in the 60s like me? Or you were here then anyway. <laughs> Most of you. Uh, what, what was the rally cry? Freedom. I want sexual freedom. I want financial freedom. I want, they want to be free of everything. Right? How'd that work for them? Not too good. <laughs> it was a mess, a disaster. But that's the human race. The way of our own sinful choosing, living in rebellion from God. So what did God do? The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him so that we could be brought back. He, Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Uh, Philip, telling the story in Acts 8, said he didn't defend himself. And that fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. He didn't open his mouth to defend himself. He just went like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth. He willingly endured it, even though it was wrong. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off, killed, taken out of the land of the living as a result of his submission to God's will to die for our sins. By oppression and judgment, he was cut off the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Substitutionary atonement. He atoned for our sins as a substitution, as a substitute. Another prophecy here, you know, he was uh, crucified between two thieves. So, and also, uh, crucifixion was only for common criminals. Roman citizens or the hierarchy and were beheaded or something like that if they committed a capital offense. So here he is, just a common criminal, crucified between two common criminals, and yet Isaiah said he's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. All the other guys, the two guys on either side of him, they just threw them in the potter's grave. You know, they had a big old fire up south southwest, I think, of Jerusalem, a constant fire where they threw animal carcasses and they'd throw these crucified bodies in there too. But Jesus was taken by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two rich guys, and buried in Joseph's tomb. All predicted right here. He was with a rich man in his death. He had done no violence. He was completely innocent. There was no deceit in his mouth. But even so, the Lord was pleased to crush him. This doesn't make sense to the human race. Oh, he was completely innocent. He was a wonderful guy. And he did these wonderful things. Let's kill him. That makes sense. But it's all God's plan as a substitution for those of us who deserve to die. That would be you and me. So the Lord was pleased because he loved us to crush Jesus putting him to grief, if he would, since he would, re render himself as a guilt offering. A guilt offering. In the Old Testament, the people were commanded, 
when they had committed a sin to come make a sacrifice and make an offering to the temple, a guilt offering. Jesus made that for us on the cross. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Because he has done all of this, God will bring him back to life. He will see his days even though he was killed. And he will prosper in God's hands. God will be satisfied. He will be resurrected. Pain in God's service will lead to Jesus' glory and our salvation. Awesome. Jesus came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. That's what Isaiah is saying. Jesus came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. So here we are in verse 11 with a theological statement. You know, theology is the study of God. So this is a statement by God explaining this whole program. As a result of the anguish, as a result of what Jesus did, how could this be fair? How could this be a good thing? I can't figure it out. An innocent man is killed. An undeserving person took all these sins. How can that be fair? God's going to explain it from his point of view in verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, God will see it and be satisfied. The theological term there that theologians use is propitiation. You use that a lot in your normal language, you know, <laughs> conversations, don't you? <laughs> it means to be appeased. It means to be satisfied. And so God saw what Jesus did and said, that's it. That appeases my anger. It brings justice. I'm satisfied that justice has been done. You'll see it and be satisfied. By the way, question, is there anything that God can't do? You know, those questions. Is there any stone too heavy for God to pick up? God made a stone. Could he make one that's too heavy for him to pick up? People love stupid questions like that. Is there anything that God can't do. Yes. God cannot overlook injustice. God cannot just let sin pass. Justice has to be done. And that's why Jesus came. Because we couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't bring justice. We we're condemned. So Jesus, the only sinless person, He's pretty unique, right? He's the only sinless person. He died, so justice came because he died for us. That's substitution. That's that vicarious nature of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so because justice came through what he did, God was satisfied. God is appeased. He will see it, what Jesus did, and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant Jesus, will justify the many. So because of what he did, 
many will be justified in God's eyes. That's a legal term saying you're innocent. You're innocent. Sins are wiped away, covered. You're innocent because of what Jesus did. He will bear their iniquities. He will carry them. All of our sin went on him. And because he did this, God saw this as a great thing, a wonderful, glorious thing. So verse 12 tells us, Therefore I will, this is God speaking, Therefore God will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He interceded for us. He stepped in and took our place on the cross. What we deserved, he took on himself. All right? So, amazing success. The world looked at it and said, well, that guy lost. We bumped that guy off. We won that battle. And God looks on it and says, nope. You people think that you're successful. The fact is, he, Jesus is successful. Amazing success. Convicted of crimes that he didn't commit. Scourged like a criminal when he was innocent. Humiliated, spat on, taunted, and executed. The worst kind of death. But none of this was accidental. All according to God's plan, all because of, provoked by God's love. A lot of people normally think, if you say, are you going to heaven, what's the normal response? Well, yeah, I think so. I'm a good guy. I've done a lot of good things. I give money here and there and do this and that and help people. and I'm well-liked and blah, blah, blah. That may be true. But in God's view... There's this completely different reality of who you and I are. And God had loved us, and there was no merit responsible for what he did. It was strictly done because of his love. God's love alone provoked him to send Jesus in the world and for him to get up on that cross. It was God's divine plan, and it accomplished salvation for the human race. And so God exalted him, he was resurrected, and he was exalted to heaven, and he sits on the right hand of God. And in the summary statement there in verse 12, therefore, he was highly exalted. Therefore, he accomplished what God sent him to do. Therefore, by believing in him, we can be saved. Awesome. So let me just uh, go over five words that uh, we need to remember every Christian should know. Number one, forgiveness. Like sheep, we all wandered away. We all need to be brought back and forgiven by God because we've all sinned. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Substitution. Jesus got in our place. He took what we deserve. He was our substitute. It's used 11 times here in that, that concept of substitution. 11 times in Isaiah 53. Justification, a legal term, that a judge, in this case God, looks at us and says, innocent, you're justified in God's eyes. 
based on what Jesus did. Atonement. The Hebrew word used here is covering. Covering. Atonement. Our sins were covered. They were erased. They were taken away. The atonement. That's what the atonement is. And Jesus accomplished that. And then the last one I just mentioned is propitiation. God cannot overlook sin. God hates sin. There must be wrath and punishment for sin. But through Jesus' sacrifice, God's wrath is appeased. God is satisfied with the payment. Propitiation. Christ accomplished all that. Let me just say real quick, uh, any betting men here, anybody bet on the final four or <laughs> the Masters yesterday, I know. Somebody was saying, Adams was saying back there that uh, one of the local clubs here had a giant betting pool. So they bought, everybody bought eight players and 2.7 million. You know, did they pick the guys that had low odds to win? No, they picked the guys that they thought had the best chance to win. They went with the odds. So we're going to do a little odds makers deal here, our, here ourselves. Based on all the prophecies that Isaiah is talking about in the course of this study, we're going to try to give the odds on Jesus, one man fulfilling all of these prophecies. You ready? Real quick. Let's put some odds on this. Help me out. Okay, he said... The Messiah who was going to accomplish this had to be born a Jew. He had to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, I don't know what the odds of that are, but I mean, there's a lot of people in the human race. So let's just throw 100 to 1 on there. There's probably a whole lot more than that. 100 to 1 odds on that. So that's kind of far-fetched. Then he also had to be of the tribe of Judah and the family of David. Boy, that really narrows it in. Makes it a lot tougher. So that's probably at least 12 to 1 just on the tribe. Not to mention the family. There's 12 tribes, by the way. Everybody's going, what? And here's a big one. He had to be, remember Isaiah 7? He had to be born of a virgin. How many? Let me see. This is going to be a real tough one for the Osmakers. This is infinity to one or something. Let's just put a million to one just because we've got to throw something on there. He also had to be born in a certain little town, Bethlehem. There was about two or 300 towns just there in, in Israel. So that big odds there. His ministry was going to be in Galilee. Why, why wouldn't it have been in Jerusalem? It was in Galilee. I mean, big odds. And then there's the incarnation, that God would become a man, be born a man, God with us, as Isaiah said. Those odds are incalculable. How many times has that happened? Never totally unique, huge odds. Although the, he was the son of God, he would be not attractive, but very ordinary. And he would be despised, rejected, beaten, humiliated, and killed. What are the odds that the son of God would do all that? And then the crucifixion was predicted by David in about 1,000 B.C. before it was even invented. He described the nails and the spread out on the cross and the whole deal. And then the vicarious atonement we just, we just saw in Isaiah 53. No man would ever think of that. Huge odds on that. Buried in a rich man's tomb, even though he killed like a common criminal. 
And then another one, very difficult to make odds on, the resurrection. This predicted several times by Isaiah. What would the odds be on that? How many people do y'all know have been raised from the dead? Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> Some of us look like we were, but... <laughs> And also being a Jew, living, born in Israel, raised a Jew, he was rejected by his own people, but then would become worshipped by Gentiles. You don't see that every day. Somebody said the odds of all these prophecies coming true would be like flying over the Sahara Desert and throwing a grain of sand out the window of the airplane. And then coming back later on foot and just with a blindfold on, grabbing that very grain of sand out of the Sahara Desert. Not going to happen. It's impossible. The odds are so great. You can only come to one conclusion. This is the Son of God. He accomplished the plan and the will of God to save us from our sins. A man asked a minister, what is the best time to receive Jesus as our Savior? He says, I, you know, I've been real busy all my life and everything, but someday I want to get, you know, step up and do this. And the guy, the minister said, well, it would be, the best time would be the day before you die. And the guy says, well, that's a great idea, but how do I know when that is? He said, Exactly. You never know how soon it will be too late. So let's get right today. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word through the great prophet Isaiah. And thank you for Jesus' fulfillment of all these prophecies and his incredible substitution for us so that we would be reunited. We who are alienated from you can be reunited to you and spend eternity in heaven and in glory with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Right. Yay! Thank you.